Good morning and welcome to Convocation. My name is Becky Horst. I'm the coordinator of Convocation. As you know, our theme this year for Convo is making peace with learning. We'd like to celebrate learning in all its forms on campus this year through Convocation. Today we'll do it by looking at Maple Scholars. Maple Scholars is a summer research program that's really quite rare for a college our size. It's been very successful, largely due to the efforts of one man, one person, Professor Carl Helrich, who taught physics here for 23 years. He's officially retired now, but he still has an office here. He still shepherds the Maple Scholars program. Now, when I think of Carl, I think of three things. Number one, his former students have told me that the man thinks in mathematics. And as an English major, that just seems really odd to me. <laughs> but I do respect it. Number two, he has this wonderful chuckle. And he's very friendly. And number three, he has a striking physical resemblance to a certain southern gentleman that's famous for a, a secret blend of 17 herbs and spices used <laughs> on fried chicken. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Carl Howrick. Good morning. I am told also that I have granted here five minutes, so I wrote out what I'm going to say, so I'll get done with it in five minutes. Um, <clears throat> before I say anything about the details of Maple Scholars, I want to make it as clear as possible that I am talking directly to first and second year students as much as to anyone else. Maple Scholars can help you get started on a project with a professor that will develop through your years at Goshen. One of my best research students was a Maple Scholar after her first, her first year and is now a PhD candidate in biomedical sciences at Northwestern. Maple Scholars embraces all of the disciplines at Goshen College. I admit that it originated in the sciences, where it still takes the form of a research program. But for those of you who are artists, musicians, and actresses, Writers, historians, sociologists, theologians, whatever has drawn your interest, this is a place for you to explore your creativity in a small community of creative people. The principal theme of Mabel Scholars is to reach out across the boundaries of academic disciplines. You are attracted to art, to literature, or even to physics because of what that discipline has and is. In Maple Scholars, we ask you to talk deeply with one another and to discover that creative sp creativity springs from that same core which is integral to what it is to be human. It takes on different roles in art and in physics, but if you look closely, you'll find the same source. Maple Scholars is an invitation to explore that. Okay. Nuts and bolts on Maple Scholars, which is what I'm usually asked. A Maple Scholars team working on a single project is a student faculty team. How many professors or how many two students on each team varies. Usually the team is one professor and perhaps one or two students, either one. Uh, Maple Scholars lasts eight weeks during the summer. The beginning is about mid-June, and the ending is traditionally the first week in August. The students, Maple Scholars, 
and the professors get stipends. And there are funds allotted to the project. The scholars get more in real dollars than the professors, and that's appropriate. And the scholars have housing provided. Exceptions are made for married students, clearly. A professor must propose the topic, and this is a question many people ask me, can a student propose a topic? Absolutely, one of the best topics we had, I think, uh, with apologies I say that, was first proposed by a group of three students who approached a faculty member. But the faculty member must propose the topic officially. Proposals are due at the end of the first week in November. So faculty, please note that date. I think it's the 6th of November this year. Accepted proposals go on the website at the beginning of December for consideration by students. We want to get them up there so that you can take a look at them at least over Christmas and perhaps even with your parents to look over what possibly you could do. Students are encouraged to apply to more than one proposal, but no more than three. Student applications are due at the beginning of February, and they do have the requisite for two letters of recommendation. Sometimes you have to push these faculty pretty hard to get those done, but you know, start early, get them done. Uh, uh, Student applications are due at the beginning of February. Uh, Decisions on scholars will be announced in the first week in March, so you have a chance to decide what your summer is going to look like. Individual faculty members, individual professors, will decide on weekly schedules. For each of us, the week looks sort of alike. Uh, It's a -a work-a-day week, but your work-a-day would be decided by the professor on your project. And then we sort of wrap up the week with a colloquium on Friday morning, which is kind of the high point of the week. There we share with one another our joys and our frustrations and so on to get a look at one another's creative activity. Now I'm going to turn this over to one of the Maple professors, Brian Sensenig, who will introduce his students. I'm Ryan Sensenig. Um, I teach ecology and environmental science in the biology department, and I direct the environmental science program. I'm going to explain to you a little bit how I got interested in tall grass prairie systems, and I'm not going to talk a whole lot about the data. I'm actually going to talk about how one comes to find a research question interesting. So to explain my interest in tall grass prairies, I, I think we actually need to go back to my childhood. I was born in Kenya, and I spent my early uh, years bumping around the savannas of Maasai Mara looking for wildlife, some some were easier to find than others, as you can see here. I found beauty here. I found wildness, unexpectedness, and drama that inspired me. And I would later learn that this drama is desired in balanced doses, And drama of this degree isn't exactly unexpected beauty. This, you may notice, is not me, but it does remind me of a time when I was chased by a buffalo during graduate school, and I did find it rather difficult to take a photograph of that experience for you, so this will have to do. In graduate school, I couldn't wait to go back to Kenya where I spent my childhood. Um, My advisor told me, choose a topic you'll never tire of. That's the advice I was given, and so with an inspiration reminiscent of my boyhood, I was once again bumping around the savannas of Kenya, sometimes getting stuck in a Land Rover 
hoping my work would someday contribute to the conservation of these systems. As I matured in the way I viewed the savanna, I realized that these systems are God's workshop for creating large grazers. Grasslands have more different species of large grazers and greater densities of large grazers than any other habitat on the planet. Something about grasslands and savannas leads to the evolution of big grass eaters. So in an elevated grassland plateau in the foothills of Mount Kenya, I began a study to try to understand how particularly grassland fires might promote the coexistence of all of these large grazers. Ecologists have been perplexed by how it is that so many large herbivores can coexist, essentially eating the same resource. How could 12, 15, sometimes even 20 different species all survive eating the same thing? Those of you who are ecologists know that this seems to break one of the fundamental rules of ecology. No two species can occupy the identical niche. It's like a core value of ecology. Well, I wondered, might the commonness of fires help explain how these habitats produce so many large herbivores? Fires have occurred in East Africa for millennia. They're frequently used to clear old and dead grass. And so as a part of my PhD research for two years, I got paid, listen to this, I got paid to set other people's land on fire. That's a pretty nice deal. Graduate school is something a lot of you probably should consider. After we uh, did lots of burns across the landscape, I counted more than 50,000 dung piles that were left behind to indicate which animals came to which burns, how often, and what kind of grass did they eat. And the results of this work suggest that each species of different body size prefers a different kind of food. The little guys, like these um, impala, love the rare, high-quality leaves that emerge after spring rain. Did I... That is not an impala. <laughs> that happens to be an elephant. And they are bigger than impala. These big guys love the tall, thick, and hard-to-digest forage available in unburned areas. So fires are God's way of creating a diverse cornucopia of food across the landscape. The diverse grazers then help maintain this diversity of plants. This leads me to the second core value of ecology. In fact, it, ought to, it probably should be the sixth GC core value. More diverse systems are more stable. So think about that and how it even applies to your social life. So the project that A.D. Gehrig and Jeremy Good are going to explain to you here in a second grew out of all this exploration in the East African savannas. We began to wonder, are the same ecological principles that worked in savanna systems, are they applicable to tallgrass prairie systems? So we began this project called the Tallgrass Prairie Grazing Project. And I, I have to admit, I'm excited about the project, but I've, I've recently realized it has two major problems. Firstly, we hardly have any prairie left in the United States. In fact, we only have 1% of all the native prairie that existed is currently available for study. It's in cornfields and wheat fields and non-native pasture grass right now. The second problem with this project is that we don't have any native grazers 
except for the pesky, ubiquitous white-tailed deer. However, the point is this. In this challenge lies an opportunity, because we did used to have a tremendous amount of tall grass prairie in the United States, as this map shows. And if you visited any of this green area 10 to 12,000 years ago, you would have realized that it had lots of large grazers. In fact, species numbers and diversity rivaled the Serengeti of today. So in terms of doing field work, by the way, just as a sidelight, getting chased by buffalo would not compare to being getting chased by a woolly rhino or a ground sloth, but that would be a different problem. So in an evolutionary sense, tall grass prairies produced lots of large grazers. Today we don't have these large grazers, but we do have folks like these, domestic grazers, cows, horses, sheep, goats, rabbits, chickens. Could all of these species pinch hit for their Pleistocene counterparts? What would happen if we changed cornfields, non-native pasture, back into tall grass prairie and used the domestic grazers to help create a diverse ecosystem? Can this kind of restoration model, which blends restoration with agriculture, help make peace on our planet? I suggest the data from Kenya systems suggest that we can benefit from a diverse suite of grazers. So I'm going to invite the two Maple scholars who have started implementing the Tallgrass Prairie Project to come forward. A.D. Gehrig is a senior environmental science major, and Jeremy Good is, is also a senior environmental science major. And they're going to tell you about just one aspect of the Tallgrass Prairie Project where we started to try to quantify the effect of white-tailed deer and goats on prairie plants. So Ryan has told you why he's interested in prairies and grazing. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I got involved with this project. Being an environmental science major includes doing an internship, and I knew that I wanted to do something that would allow me to explore the beauty of God's creation while being involved in the practice of doing science. When I heard that there was going to be an environmental science Maple Scholars project, I was immediately interested. I had spent the previous summer uh, at Mary Lee doing the agroecology summer intensive program, and I immensely enjoyed living at Mary Lee for that summer. Um, living at Mary Lee provides opportunities to explore nature, practice sustainable living, and uh, perform ecological research. So my decision to apply for a Maple Scholars position wasn't so much about the specific project, but about the chance to be directly involved in the process of doing a scientific study at such a beautiful place as Mary Lee. And now is going to talk to you a little bit about what we did this summer. Since Jeremy and I worked on an environmental science project, we had the opportunity to live at Mary Lee in Wreath Village. We lived there in harmony with nature and with three other agroecology students for about seven weeks this summer. Our day usually started at 8 o'clock, and if we weren't presenting at the college or entering data, we headed out to the prairie to do field research. Our study site was Lucky's Prairie, which is a reconstructed prairie planted in 2004. On the right, you can see um, our two sample areas. 
Since we were comparing plants that had been eaten by deer with plants that were protected from deer, each sample had a fenced off 20 by 20 meter area next to an exposed 20 by 20 meter area. So those are the boxes you see on the right. When we collected field data, we looked at the plant's height, density, and how much they had been eaten by insects, rabbits, and deer. We also recorded fecal matter in order to assess the presence of grazers in our sample areas. We also looked at density, I mean diversity. In this one square meter, to most people, there probably doesn't seem to be many different species of plants. But actually there are probably about 10 different species of forbs or wildflowers and three different species of grasses. So we soon learned how to identify these plants. So the average day of field research looks kind of like this. <laughs> um, but Jeremy and I did get to do a side project. Since we were curious about what surrogate grazers would choose to eat, we brought in some goats and recorded what they preferred to eat. And actually this next week we'll also be bringing in some horses to see what their preferences too. Because we worked at Mary Lee, we also got the opportunity to help out with bird banding, sometimes twice a week. We would get up with the sunrise to set up mist nets. The nets were checked every half hour and we would collect data on the birds caught and band them. The information would later be sent off to a nationwide bird banding program. So um, now Jeremy is going to talk a little bit about what we found in our study. So we did a lot of collecting of data, but we, uh, from our data, were able to devise this model that shows the different players and the different interactions that are going on in the prairies. I'm going to just explain the basics of it. On the left are the forb grazers, which include deer and possibly goats. Uh, and the deer prefer to eat the forbs, which are the wildflowers. And uh, the grass grazers, such as buffalo and we believe horses, uh, would also be, well, they eat grass, uh, will choose to eat the grass instead of the forbs. And that, is, that has to do with the body size of these animals. And so there are several other interactions, but uh, we devised this ecological model to sh show uh, those interactions. So what we found from our data, data that we collected is that deer are pretty picky eaters. We knew right off that they would be eating the wildflowers and not the grasses, but what we didn't know is what specific wildflowers they'd be eating. And so what we found is that uh, these are the different uh, wildflowers that were present in the prairie, but they chose to eat only a few of them frequently. Uh, so that was an interesting thing for us to find. And what we found then also is the plants that they chose to eat frequently, uh, their height was usually less than those in the areas that there were no deer. So we found that they're uh, significantly affecting these plants. We also found that there were fewer flowers on the plants that uh, were eaten by deer. So we're starting to see some significant effects of the deer eating these plants. Then with our goats that we brought in, we found that the goats 
while most people think they're not very picky at all, we found that they also did some selection of uh, specific plants more than others. There's lots of grass in the prairie, and so they ate grass, but they also selected for some very specific uh, plants in the prairie as well. So that's giving us some background uh, information on to how we can further go about this idea of bringing back uh, pra uh, gra grazers to the prairie in an agricultural setting. Uh, so that's helped us give us some more ideas about that. Uh, and now Aidy is going to talk a little bit about what we learned about science in general over the summer. My Maple Scholars experience has taught me a lot, from the importance of interdisciplinary communication to how to identify tall grass prairie forbs, but probably the most significant thing I've gained is a changed perception of research. This was my first time doing real research, and I soon realized that it's not as clean cut as my fifth grade science fair project on building a model volcano. It can be chaotic and overwhelming. Because we were looking at such a complex system, like a prairie for instance, it takes several years and many replicates to maybe, with some luck, come up with significant data. I also look at other research projects in a different light. When you struggle dealing with the issues you encounter creating your own research project, suddenly the methods section of an awfully long research paper is much more interesting. You may think about how they decided to deal with a certain variable and how that applies to yours. And this doesn't just pertain to my own field of study. I can begin to look at other areas of research and start to make sense of the madness and think critically about the results. A better understanding of research is a skill I will use in graduate school and as an intentional global citizen throughout life. Good morning, my name is Beth Martin Berkey and I teach English and Women's Studies here at Goshen College. And this is uh, Rachel Halder, my Maple Scholar, one of my Maple Scholars for the summer. And our project on Costa Rican women's stories is um, an excellent example of the rich and collaborative learning that's been a part of my teaching here at Goshen College. Working here, I've had an opportunity to expand my research way beyond my dissertation topic on the narratives of fallen women in 18th century British fiction. Um, I wasn't going to go into experiential learning with that topic. <laughs> with unique opportunities like leading SST in Costa Rica or teaching a course on the global women's movement, my ways of perceiving knowledge and learning and research have expanded and broadened into collaborative learning in real-life contexts. This particular project in Costa Rica is a perfect example of the ways holistic and experiential learning can grow and shape future learning. As an SST leader, I was fortunate to meet many amazing Costa Rican women. Some were host mothers of our students, others were from organizations we visited, and each of them had amazing stories of the ways that they were working together to improve their lives and the lives of their communities. Ana Hernandez, director of Alianza de Mujeres, says it well. We women are conscious of the need to bring about a society in which we can grow, develop, be happy, and consider ourselves full human beings with complete equality, freedom, and responsibility. These powerful stories, which I heard time and time again, were ones I felt important to share with Goshen College students, particularly my women's studies minors. 
With grant support, I've had the privilege to return to Costa Rica four more times. The first two times I visited women's organizations looking for potential women's studies internships. In 2006, I led a class on Costa Rican women and community development in the mountainous region of Monteverde. And in that place, we heard even more stories um, from women's organizations and local community organizers. During that class, you'll notice that students not only studied, but they also did service. They had fun with local school children and their host families. And they learned directly from Costa Rican women, like this group of women who developed a community AIDS education project in their small, small village. In 2007, I returned with four students as part of a Peace and Justice Journalism grant. Four students, um, I don't know, maybe only at Goshen College can you end up with a group like that. The one on the left is Lindsay Glick, um, then the Valores Hess. The, one, the third from the left is another Lindsay Glick. And the fourth one is Jonathan Glick. Um, <laughs> needless to say, the Costa Ricans were a little confused by all of this. Um, these four students helped me gather hours of interview footage, hundreds of photos, and notes um, on these women's stories. Later in the year, a student in uh, Creating for the Web, whose name was Kim Glick, um, created this beautiful web page featuring the history of my work with women's organizations and the individual women and their businesses. Elizabeth Spiegel, the other um, Maple Scholars this summer, added to this page with new information and with her research on Costa Rican women and religion. As I continue my scholarly research of issues in Costa Rican women's lives, I've decided to focus more on the ways the projects can develop students' ability to join conversations across borders and to learn collaboratively, to develop a collection of materials that students can use to foster continued dialogue between Costa Rican women and young US feminists and scholars. Rachel Halder's work is just one example of the way each student has brought her own passion, her own interests and skills to the material and framed a new learning experience for herself. So yes, I'm Rachel Halder, and I'm a communications major and a women's studies minor, and I have a cold, so if I have a coughing attack, I do apologize. So entering into the Maple Scholars program with Beth this past summer, I had no idea that the end result would be a 20-minute documentary that I had created about a very small women's cooperative in Costa Rica that, although I feel like I have been to, I actually have not ever encountered. The eight weeks of study definitely didn't begin with the documentary. In fact, it began with intense research on Costa Rica in general, but particularly focusing on the Costa Rican women's movement in addition to understanding transnational feminism. After about two weeks, I decided on a thesis, which was women's cooperatives in Costa Rica, particularly focusing on one cooperative known as CASEM that Beth and the students in 2007 had gathered a lot of video footage and information on. I didn't just randomly decide this as my thesis, though. As some of you may know, and many of you probably do not, I went to Peru on SST in the spring of 2008. And a very long story short, I began assisting a group of young girls, as well as women prostitutes, in selling their bracelets here in the United States. I've engaged with these women in this group for the past year or so, 
and I have sent over $6,000 of profit from these bracelets. And although this is a great endeavor, I have come to a point where I do not feel I can successfully continue selling individual bracelets. Therefore, when reading about this women's cooperative in Costa Rica, I thought, aha, how brilliant. I can learn about cooperatives through my Maple Scholar study, and I can hopefully apply this concept to my SSD experience and the business I began with the women in Peru. The third and fourth week of Maple Scholars was spent researching cooperatives in general, but particularly feminist or women's cooperatives in South American countries. Eventually, I had gathered enough information to delve into the video footage uh, that Beth gathered and the students collected, which originally I was going to use just to support my thesis. Again, long story short, as I'm leaving out quite a few details, it ended up that I decided I should make a short documentary focusing on Kasem and how it was created using the ideals of the Costa Rican women's movement and the ideas of transnational feminism, and then what the outcomes of this women's cooperatives were for the community of Monteverde. I had never made a documentary before, let alone examined uh, 30 hours of footage, and so this was a pretty daunting task, but I am semi-satisfied with the end product, so that is good. Today, I, can show you the in I can't show you the entire film, as it's way too long, but I am going to show you the introduction. It's about four, minute, four minutes long. It's the basic introduction to the rest of the documentary, and in case you recognize the narration voice, I had Sarah Alvarez um, narrate, so... You can watch this four minutes, and then I'll give a little explanation afterwards. Thank you. 
a glimpse of the film. Uh, the remaining sections of the film explain how Kassem became a large asset to the entire community of Monte Verde and how it exemplified the Costa Rican's women's movement. And the rest of the sections are much of the interview with Patricia. The end quote of the film, which you did not see today, reads, Western feminism places a strong emphasis on individual rights and freedoms. Global feminism often focuses on economic development alone or addresses specific social problems or injustices in a region. Patricia's story and those of other Costa Rican women testify to the more intangible benefits of women's organizing and working for change in their communities. So I hope you enjoyed the film, and if you wish to learn more about this or to see the entire documentary, you can let Beth or I know. And also, if you'd like more information about this project, you can check out the website that Elizabeth Spiegel worked on as part of the Maple Studies program as well. And I believe there's a link that you can see. Thank you, Adie and Jeremy. I am always, each time I see Maple Scholars unravel, so to speak, each summer, I think it's never been so great as this summer. But I realize that's not true. Uh, they're all unique summers, and what I've told many of these people as they get ready, you all can remember the emails that said it's going to be a wonderful summer. And uh, I think it was. I think this next summer will be as wonderful. And I've appreciated... AD particularly and Rachel speaking to what came out of themselves here in this that wasn't really planned because we even as faculty members on the projects think we know where they're going but we've got to watch out because we don't really. 
It's, it unravels itself. I think there's an announcement that somebody, no? Okay. Then as far as I'm concerned, we're dismissed. <laughs>